The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Steve just texted in at 630-630, and you can get a hold of me anytime at 630-630. says, hey, Jay, my daughter-in-law is a volunteer firefighter in Rocky Mountain House, and they do get paid when they are on a fire call. Well, I'm guessing that they would, um, but mostly, you know, volunteer firefighters, for the most part, you know, they uh, have full-time jobs elsewhere, and, you know, when the the call goes out, uh, they rush in. Uh, a A harrowing story now. Uh, from Mount Everest, Chris Dare is a dentist with the Canadian Forces and a mountaineer. He's been on a nine-year mission to complete the seven summits. It's a challenge that involves ascending the highest mountain on the seven continents. Everest was the last push, and it proved to be incredibly dangerous. One of his friends died. Others barely made it out alive. Chris, welcome to the show this afternoon. Hi, thanks for having me. So, you know what, Chris, I mean, part of you, this has got to be, um, you know, you, you, you managed to, to get to the top of Everest, but along the way, um, you, you lost a friend and uh, you, you encountered some really, really difficult circumstances. Must be very bittersweet these days. Oh, for sure. You know, like getting to the summit is just one part of the whole story. It's actually a story that lasts over two months of me being outside of Canada. Um, and so while it was, yeah, so while it was great to accomplish my my nine year dream and get to that summit, you know, I can't help but think that it is bittersweet because of all the heartache and and losing a friend up there that had developed a, a really close bond with. Um, it is quite hard. So let's let's talk. You 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 talked about the two months, the preparation. I mean, you've you've done this, um, you know, times before. When it, what does the preparation look like to climb Mount Everest? Everest is just a whole nother level. I mean, on the other high altitude mountains I've done before, trips would last, you know, three or four weeks. This is an over two month slog. <laughs> um, when you first get to Everest, I got to uh, Everest Base Camp on the Tibet side, uh, 15 April, but it was before I had was training in Nepal. Um, you're there, and what you have to do is you have to constantly move up and down the mountain to try to get your body ready for that altitude, get ready for the lack of oxygen at super high altitude, get some red blood cells uh, grown. Um, so pretty much you're in expedition, living in tents the entire time, uh, just kind of moving up and down the mountain over and over and over again. The weather was a real challenge, wasn't it, um, uh, on your trek? Yes, definitely. Um, so in 2018, they actually had the best weather they ever had on Everest. And so in 2019, uh, we're hoping for the same thing. Last year, they had 10 days of no wind where the jet stream or weather window where the jet stream moved over from the summit so that climbers can go up. In 2019, we had one day. And so that forced all the climbers on the north side, at least, to go on the same day. And uh, and it caused a lot of of trouble, a lot of lineups, a lot of of delays. And uh, when I got to the summit, uh, it took me twice as long as it's supposed to. It's supposed to take set, uh, six to nine hours. I took 11 and a half to get oh to summit gosh. from Camp 3. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of danger. Uh, when we got to the summit, actually, the weather window closed <laughs> and the jet stream came back. And then we had 60 kilometer winds, 
uh, with negative 50 degree temperatures like that pound is on the way down. Wow. So, so Chris, you know, I've been looking at some of the video and some of the pictures that we're taking. You talk about all of those, all those, uh, all those people who now had to, you know, you have that uh, little window up you go and it looked, it was like a human traffic jam. Yeah, it, uh, it was, it was like that. I mean, um, there was an image going around the internet that uh, shows the south side with, it must have been at least like 50 climbers all in one line there. It wasn't quite as bad on the north okay. uh, because they limit the number of permits that go out uh, on the Chinese side as well as they vet the climber history. But at the same time, uh, on the north side, there is three steps. So there are vert- the steps are vertical bottlenecks where you climb vertically and only one person can go at the same time. Uh, very dangerous, very slow. Uh, on the north side, we have three, whereas on the south, there's only one called the Hillary Step. Yeah. So uh, that caused a lot of delays. Even if you have just 10, 15 people in front of you on those steps, you're waiting like an hour, an hour and a half. And when you have to add an hour, an hour and a half, three times, times two, because the ascent and descent, uh, that turns into a huge delay. What does your body feel like? Like when you got to the top after the 11 and a half hours, you get to the summit. I mean, it's like, wow, you've made it to the summit of Everest. Wow, we've, we've done this. But what does your body feel like? What is what is in your mind at that point? Uh, you know what? Like when I got to the summit, I was exhausted to get to that point. But I mean, the adrenaline was pushing me for 11 and a half hours. I didn't know we were going for 11 and a half um, luckily, like my Sherpa is super good, and he's watching my oxygen and watching time. But I didn't feel the extreme exhaustion until on the way down. Uh, but when I did get to that summit, you know, the exhilaration of being finally on top, finally there after nine years of working hard, it was overwhelming. And I actually had like a little bit of a cry behind my goggles there because I was I was so overwhelmed with emotion. Uh, I didn't tell anybody at the time, but yeah, it did happen. <laughs> so, Chris, just going backtracking just a little bit. So, when you talk about these weather windows, are there only certain times of the year that 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 people can go up Everest? Yeah, um, it's almost like clockwork how it works, uh, and our weather prediction is getting so good that uh, the only times you can climb Everest is that mid-May time where the jet stream moves over. Okay. And there's also a really small window in like October, but obviously because uh, it's winter, the uh, the conditions are even worse. Mm. Um, so you're only looking at you know mid-May to try to summit, or again, if you're really lucky, October. So I was looking at some of these numbers today. Um, what did it say? Uh, Eleven climbers died on Mount Everest this year. That's the highest number since 2015. One of them was your friend Kevin. Tell us what happened to Kevin, Chris. Yeah, so Kevin, he was our most like experienced uh, climber, actually. Yeah. He climbed Mount Everest from the south side last year. He climbs in Pakistan and India every single year. Super, super nice, down-to-earth guy. Uh, he actually never tells anybody he goes on mountaineering trips every year. He just says he's going on vacation to his friends. <laughs> so, like... Probably his friends didn't even know he was on Everest again this year. Um, but what happened was uh, I shared a tent with him at the highest camp, Camp 3 at 8,300. We had left camp uh, land 10 o'clock at night, uh, started moving together. He suddenly just didn't feel right. So he didn't feel right. He didn't feel up for it. He said, you know what, like, 
I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go down. And there's, there's no, I mean, no summit for me today. I know it's not going to happen. You know, I'm going to turn around. So you made the wise decision to definitely turn around and then go to start going to lower camps. Um, so he proceeded all the way down to camp one, which is 7,100 meters, which is still very, very high. Uh, he ate, he drank, um, he went to his tent, was snoring all night long. <laughs> and then in the morning when his uh, Sherpa was checking off him at seven in the morning, still snoring, uh, an hour later, he had passed away in oh his gosh. sleep. So we don't really know why, uh, but I mean, we do know that Everest is a very unforgiving place. Mm. And even at 7,100 meters, you're breathing in like 10%, 9% effective oxygen if you're breathing on normal air. He was actually on, on oxygen at the time when he was sleeping. But uh, we don't know. I think his body maybe just gave up. I mean, it's hard. Yeah. It's a hard hard place to be. Uh, but we all miss him very much, and we, we were all crushed when we had heard uh, on our way down because we didn't even know until we started descending uh from camp three trying to spend the night up there uh that he had passed and uh it absolutely crushed all of us chris dare joining me on the phone this afternoon uh a mountain climber mountaineer and a dentist with the canadian armed forces just returned uh from um scaling mount everest and uh my goodness some scary scary moments on on this trek with him how do you find the sherpa that goes with you chris oh my sherpa his name is nehru he was amazing I mean, he had, before we had summited together, he had summited Everest 13 times. Cheapers. Um, so he is super experienced, super strong, even when we're on oxygen. So we need oxygen above 7,100 meters when we start our push towards the summit. Uh, they even use less oxygen than us. Like they actually set their flow rate to even lower <laughs> and they still are stronger than us. Western climbers, it's it's crazy. Uh, but the thing about him is he works so hard for his family in Nepal. I mean, he he uh, works 11 months of the year and only sees his family one month of the year. Um, and he works that hard so he can earn enough money so that his his three daughters uh, can go to school in Kathmandu. I mean, so is, there, uh, is it like Sherpa, like Sherpa.com? Like, how do you, how do you hook up with him? Like, how did you uh, find him? I was, I was extremely lucky. He was referred to me okay. by uh, another climber when I had climbed in Antarctica. And he said, he, this friend of mine, he had already climbed Everest with Nauru and it said, listen, if you're going to go climb Everest, you can just contact him directly yeah. and go with him. Wow. Uh, but like other, other climbers might, uh, get organized through expedition companies mm -hmm. and then they get assigned a Sherpa because everybody who climbs on Everest is required to have a climbing Sherpa. So when you're summiting, you have a Sherpa with you, like another person. Um, but I was just fortunate that uh, that I had gotten a room and uh, and then we're, we're very close ever since. I mean, we were stuck like glue together for the entire two months. <laughs> so, Chris, you know, I was reading a, there was a story that was uh, written and, and there was a uh, there was talk about um, the actions of another Sherpa that helped a, a, a female climber. Um, what happened there? Uh, yeah, so we had a couple of incidents. Um, so I was kind of adopted by an expedition uh, team called 360 Expeditions. We'd spend all our time together at base camp. And Kevin was part of them too, an advanced base camp, living, eating, drinking together. So we developed a, quite a strong bond. So even though like Nuru and I were independent climbers from advanced base camp onward, we kind of stuck with this group. Um, but because of the delays on summit day, um, two of my, uh, the 360 members 
ran out of oxygen at high altitude, so above 8,300 meters, above 8,000, which is a death zone. Um, one climber, climber Cam, uh, ran out, and uh, her Sherpa actually had to leave her uh, to try to go find help at lower camp, uh, Camp 3. Uh, and then uh, heroically, uh, Ralph, the expedition leader, uh, like, saw the Sherpa came in, didn't see Cam, the climber, asked the Sherpa where she was. The Sherpa was really hypo hypoxic, no oxygen, pointed towards the ridge. Uh, Ralph saw a flash of light higher up and decided to go try to see what was up there. Went up with you know their last bottle of oxygen, reached Cam, the climber, who was paralyzed, no oxygen, couldn't move her hands. Her hands were frozen in claw positions. So she couldn't grip rope. She couldn't stand. Oh, uh, Ralph heroically uh, attached her to himself and rappelled down three pitches. Wow. And then dragged her into camp three with no oxygen. Um, another climber, Arthur from our group, ran out of oxygen again above uh, 8,300 meters above camp three. Completely as well, paralyzed. Um, him and his, his Sherpa gave him his last little bit of oxygen in his tank and was trying to find, ask other climbers, anybody for oxygen. Random Sherpa shows up out of nowhere after they've been pleading with other people and directs them towards his own oxygen cache oh. and gave him oxygen, wow. saved his life. Wow. I mean, those are, and that's just like two out of like the five clients in our group yeah. pretty much almost died. Myself, ex extremely exhausted, barely made it to camp myself because of the time it took. <laughs> Uh, just incredible. Chris, I've, I've read stories over the past uh, couple of years about, um, you know, you talk about the number of people going, the dangers of this, and, you know, actually, you know, some climbers having to climb over, you know, some the bodies that sometimes had to be left there, uh, the, the garbage that is there as well. What do you see? Um, is it that bad? Uh, you know what? On the Chinese side, the north side, the garbage really isn't an issue. Okay. Um, there isn't a lot. Uh, sure, there is some because you, at some camps, like tents just get destroyed by wind and uh, you can't recover that, you know, just stuff everywhere and the tents shredded. Uh, but the garbage isn't too bad. And I think for, for climbers anyway, we do our best to try to take all our garbage. I mean, I took extra garbage down from Camp 3 <laughs> because I want to, you know, I, I'm conscious of the environment. I know yeah. this is a problem. Oxygen bottles, not an issue. Um, Everybody's like Sherpas are really good about taking the oxygen bottles they take up because there is a bounty on them mm. um, because people recognize it's a problem. So on the north side, not so bad. Okay. On the south, I heard it's a huge issue, but on the north side, not so bad. Bodies, yes, um, just because it's more dangerous to move them mm. and bring them back down than to leave them in place. Uh, so what usually happens is um, if someone dies, they move that body off to the side a little bit so you're not stepping on them. Uh, but it is, you know, it is, they are there and I do respect that, you know, for those bodies, yeah, don't, don't risk more lives going after a body. I mean, that's, okay. I think that's foolish. Um, you know, it's, you, you've, we've painted a story here. You've told a story that is actually, as I, I said off the top, rather, rather harrowing. Doesn't sound like it was a, you know, doesn't sound to me that it was a great experience. Yeah, you, you reach, you grab that brass ring, you, you got it, but boy, oh boy. Um, I think bittersweet was the word that you used off the top, and I, I, I think that's a really good way to describe it because I'm like, I don't know what was enjoyable about that, Chris. Yeah, you know, I would have never imagined the difficulty level 
of this mountain compared to the ones I had climbed before. Like I've climbed really, really high mountains before. You know, I've done a 7,000 meter mountain. I've climbed all around the world. And those are, you know, I come back from those trips. I'm like, yeah, that was pretty hard. Um, but I come back from Everest and I'm floored the yeah. difficulty level. It was like a thousand times harder and more, more dangerous. Um, you know, there's ledges there that are like 20 centimeters wide and you make a mistake, you're, you're going to drop like 30 meters and hurt yourself. And then you can't be recovered because it's too high up, you know, like it was a hard mountain and it's really hard to describe how difficult it is, but that actually being there, yeah. but it's that, it's literally that crazy. But having said that, I mean, yeah, you reached a goal, you did it. And that's pretty amazing. And Chris, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us and sharing your story today. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Are you going to lay low for a little while now? <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm I'm really happy with faucets and flushing toilets, you know, and beds right now. Really infatuated with those things. Oh, Chris, great to talk to you. Thanks for this. Uh, Chris Dare uh, talking to us about that uh, that scary, exhilarating ascent and descent of Mount Everest. And I know there's some folks uh, around here that have done this a couple of times, but I tell you, he paints a picture there of something that I'm not sure that I would want to do. And now, uh, hey, uh, I get, you know, setting goals and saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to reach out and do this. And how great that he managed to do it. You know, what was it? The, uh, the, uh, the nine-year mission to complete the seven summits, so uh, the highest mountain on the seven continents, and he did it. And if you want to read more about it, check out his website at dare7summits.com. Dare, the number seven, summits.com. Pretty cool. Is there anything that you think that you would love to do? Years back, 2004, 2005, I decided that I wanted to do a bodybuilding competition. Uh, I was... Uh, well, it's not as sh- out of shape as I am now, but it was crazy out of shape back then. Um, and, you know, my first my first show, uh, so I did two years, and it was really cool. And I know that some people are like, why would you ever want to do that? Why would you want to con- uh, uh, climb Everest? But there is something about setting a goal and then reaching it and going, hey, I did it. You check it off that little bucket list of things that you want to do in your life. Hey, I want to write a book. Done. I want to go in a bodybuilding contest. Boom. I want to climb Everest. Okay. What's yours? What's stopping you?